Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Josh Adams. Now with goats. Mark Erickson. Hey there. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week we have a special guest, and that's Ben Schmeckpepper. Hi, great to be here. Did I get anywhere in the ballpark? You nailed it. Most people don't get it right, but you got it right. Nice. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Let us know who you are, why you're famous, <laughs> yeah. whether or not you have goats. <laughs> I don't have goats yet. You know, it's because I have goals. Um, so I am a software engineering manager at a place called Kenna Security in Chicago. So we are uh, like a vol management company that helps uh, our clients stay safe. Uh, we're a Ruby shop. I've been a Ruby developer for seven years now. Uh, started with Rails and now doing a lot more just pure Ruby stuff. I've been interested in Elixir for a long time, since 2015, and I've been doing a lot of stuff on the side. Um, <clears throat> probably the most, the thing that's gotten the most visibility for me, at least, I'm not sure that I'm famous, is uh, I was doing some spike work at work uh, to, to investigate moving some stuff that we do over into Elixir. And <clears throat> as a result of that, I needed a way to parse XML documents. I didn't find an existing... Sax parser in Elixir. So I created a library called Slacks that wraps an Erlang module that does Sax parsing and gives it a nice Elixir front end that you can uh, integrate with and use in your code. Is that XML? Yes. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Elixiry. I'm, I'm going to have to commandeer that word. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think it's worth talking about what is a SAX parser, like S-A-X? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So there, <clears throat> SAX is one of two main uh, methods that I know of, at least for parsing XML. So there is the DOM, D-O-M, document object model, and then SAX. So SAX stands for uh, streaming. Simple uh, API for XML. That's right. Simple API for, thank you. Simple API for XML. Uh, I have this document more, open right in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so SAX parsing is a, uh, it's more of a stream oriented approach to parsing XML, whereas document, the DOM model uh, is more of uh, the document model where you would parse everything at once and then be able to make arbitrary queries using stuff like XPath. Uh, Right, so that feels a lot more natural, especially people who have, you know, done things with jQuery. We can say like, give me all divs on a page of, a, of HTML. It's a lot similar. The DOM model, you can say like, give me all author, author nodes and then take the names out of those nodes. Whereas with simple API for XML, SACS parsing, it's really just more event-based. And so every time some element in the document is encountered, your code 
a callback in your code gets called and you respond to it, but there is no like greater, if you want to maintain state, you can maintain state, but there is no like greater state maintained by the parser. So, so it's a little bit more uh, work up front for the developer, but you know, there's, there's trade-offs to be made obviously in SACS allows you to parse larger documents uh, because you just don't have that memory requirement of the document of, of DOM parsing. So I'm curious is, you know, you mentioned your Ruby shop. Um, is that how Nokogiri works? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Nokogiri is predominantly a DOM parser. I think there is a way to do SACS parsing from Nokogiri, but the, the, the times I've used Nokogiri in the past has been DOM parsing where you handed a string representation of XML, it gives you back an object and then you can make XPath queries. You say like, you know, here's my query that defines all the nodes that I want and I get back a collection of them and I work with that collection. Interesting. Okay. So I'm curious as to uh, what kind of documents, like, like uh, when I was, I had not previously been familiar with SACS parsing. Like DOM object model, you know, is the, is the way that I'm most familiar with XML. And I have dealt with a lot of XML documents. And that's, you know, I'm dealing with maybe an external uh, service, like a SOAP service or something like that. And I, so I, there are XML. Like it still exists in the world and people still write in Java for some reason. But, but we, we still have these documents that we have to deal with. So you're talking about like something special is about these, these kinds of documents. Like they're extremely large right? Like why would I need SACS as, as a, uh, a, an alternative for parsing? Yeah. I mean, it's mostly around uh, just memory, the memory impact of parsing a very large document, right? So we are, this came up, uh, this comes up a lot in, in my job because we deal with uh, assets and vulnerabilities, right? So the, basically what we do at work is a, co a company will run a network scan which then will return basically an inventory of all of the machines that it found on the network and all the vulnerabilities for that machine. And then we ingest that data and do some processing on it. So we're dealing with large, large amounts of data and it's not unusual for these files, these XML files to reach over a gigabyte into multiple gigabytes, right? And so all of a sudden, if you're gonna, if you're gonna try to DOM parse that and get back a hash or something similar to a hash, like now all of a sudden you've got a lot of memory pressure from that and it's, you know, multiple gigabytes of memory overhead and we're running Ruby. So we already have, you know, a decent memory footprint to begin with. Um, and so we start bumping up against the limits of our machines. So SAX parsing lets you deal with it uh, just a chunk at a time, right? So I might have a gigabyte of XML, but really I'm only dealing with a node at a time and it knows a couple, a couple bytes, maybe a couple, maybe a kilobyte if it's a very large node. And then I can, you know, hold on to the pieces of data I actually care about without having the overhead of the entire document and memory at any given time. Well put. <laughs> and there's other, you know, SACS, some SACS parsing has a few other benefits in that, right, to really, so DOM parsing requires that you have the entire document available, right? You can't inter interact with it until you finish parsing. And so, you know, right, you got to get all the way through. You got to have the that final end tag before you get your, your object back. The SAX parsing, you can really stream the data through because you don't need the entire document. You can just say, given the XML, given the chunk that I'm looking at right now, here are the events, here are the, you know, the different pieces of it. And so if you are, say, reading off a network file, off a network socket, you can just take it in chunks and just stream your way through it without waiting to 
accumulate everything. And so, you know, that, that also reduces the memory footprint because you don't need to buffer everything and it lets you start processing a little bit sooner. And the sender could also be streaming that to your socket. Exactly. Exactly. So I was uh, a little surprised to learn from Josh this uh, before we got on the call that he has been using a SAX parser previously. So he has some like real world experience with this. Josh, do you have anything uh, like some, I don't know, perspective that you can bring to that? Uh, generally, it's, um, it's just I like the model really a lot uh, of doing SAX parsing just because it's, it is just event based. So it's like um, if you think of the XML document coming through, it's just like stuff that happened or like an event stream kind of uh, model. It, it works really well if, if the document is sort of made that way. I don't know. But in general, yeah, like most of the time it was to manage sort of memory uh, just keep memory sane because I was doing this stuff with no Kagiri Sax parser when I did it in sort of bulk. And um, yeah, like Ruby, it, it's very glad to grab lots of memory if you let it. Um, anyway, so it was, for me, it was mostly about getting around that, but we I also did some streaming. I don't remember what the source was, but we had some source that would stream XML documents to us that were events. And so we just got to handle kind of a streaming protocol that was just, we'll send you some XML. So Ben, I was curious as to, you know, you like right now you're doing a lot of Ruby full time and you're experimenting with this. So what was it like? Because uh, this is, I would say it's probably not a trivial experiment with Elixir to, to, to build a library that's like a, a kind of like an esoteric XML parser. So what was that like uh, developing that in Elixir? Yeah, you know, it wasn't quite as bad as it probably sounds. Um, so this was a situation that, you know, to me is one of the great benefits of Elixir is that we're built, it's built on top of Erlang, right? And so I didn't have to get down into the guts of like matching up angle brackets and doing all that stuff and understanding all these idiosyncrasies of XML, which is very that complicated. That sounds fun. Yeah. That sounds so fun. It sounds great. <laughs> no, no joke though, writing parsers is really fun. I'm sure it is. Um, but, but yeah, you know, some of the tokenization and stuff and, yeah. Yeah. So Erlang and Elixir are like super well suited for writing uh, a lot of types of parsers without actually like writing a parser parser. Um, but I would bet that uh, XML probably has an actual YAC, YAC parser. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, sounds like, you know, and, and I was going to ask this, but Ben's already answering it. So it sounds like mostly your expertise had to be in adapting an Elixir library to, or an Erlang library to Elixir rather than being an expert in necessarily parsing XML. Right. Yeah. I was able to find an existing Erlang library called Erlsam that did SAX parsing already. Um, <clears throat> so I was able to basically think of what is the interface I would like to use for SAX parsing and then create that and just wrap Erlsam with that interface so that I could you know, make <clears throat> Elixir calls and, you know, deal with structs instead of, you know, uh, a five tuple that uh, Erlsam would normally give back and do those kind of things. So I was able to focus more on the usability and how your code interacts with it and not have to get down in the guts of handling, you know, XML processing instructions and all these different things that uh, I really don't know how, the, how any of those things would work in XML. Ergonomics. That's a good way to put it. So how do you decide then what the ergonomics of your API feel like then, right? How, how did you design that? Mm -hmm. I always design mine and then I always have to go back and go, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was nice, right? So I was doing this like 
as a part of a larger project where I was like the only user of this library early on. And so I was, you know, able to do a little bit of that iterative approach of, you know, try something and, uh, you know, turns out my code doesn't look so nice when I have this interface. Let me tweak it a little bit. Um, and I think the big thing that I was striving for was to make pattern matching read really, read really well and be really easy to use. I think that's, you know, that's a, that's a great benefit of Elixir is being able to pattern match and function heads. And when you have this event driven style that is sax parsing, right? So like I'm getting my callbacks getting called every time I see a start tag, but I can write one function, one function head that matches start tags where the with start tags of the type author and a different function head that start tags of the type books, for example, right? And like I can have two very different methods that are delineated by the function heads without having all of this complicated logic that would normally exist in, you know, the, if you were to do this for Ruby, for example. And so I kind of started there as like, <clears throat> how do I want pattern matching and function heads to play into it? And then in order to facilitate that, what kind of events, what kind of data do I need to be getting out from the parser and so i took earlsom earlsom wraps uh just returns tuples that have you know a, uh, an atom at the start and then whatever variable data after it which is it works but if you want to you know match a part of it now you have to do the whole tuple and put in underscores for the parts you don't care about and so i was able to grab those tuples and transform them into structs and to me, pattern matching against a struct reads a little bit cleaner than pattern matching against a tuple. I agree. And so I'm just looking at your uh, blog post where you have some sample code of what this looks like. And I think people should certainly check that out, especially if, uh, if they're dealing with large XML files and this might be an interesting solution for them. But uh, so I was curious, like you, now you've seen both sides of the same kind of tool. You've seen like the Ruby version, which you've been, you know, uh, you work with on a regular basis and you have this Elixir version and are you, are you happy now with, are you pretty satisfied with the API, like the, the pattern matching and the way that's working? I am. Yeah. I'm, I really like the way pattern matching came out. And really when I'm in Ruby working, especially working with SACS parsers, I wish I had pattern matching because the code, at least the way I've interacted with SACS parsers and Ruby is, you know, you build up a lot of internal state and then you have a lot of conditions. It's like, if I'm, operating on this kind of tag in this situation, you know, these are the two lines I want to run and then else. So you have these long conditionals and really the pattern matching to me, it, it turned out really well and it led me write the kind of code I was hoping to be able to write. So I'm, I'm, I am very happy with, with the way Slack's turned out. And it is one of many reasons why when I'm writing Ruby, I wish I could reach for some of the, uh, you know, Elixir, Elixir niceties that we have. And if anyone was curious, I checked your first real commit and there are tests in the first commits. <laughs> he is a real coder. I wanted to see, I figured they'd be there because he was doing it for an actual project. And like, that's what I would do in that situation. It's like, here's what I want to write. Yeah. You know, you know, testing it. I haven't gone, I should go deeper and like have more arcane XML. So it's a lot of very simple XML that I'd make sure it parses nicely, but you know, the speed with which you can, test in in elixir makes it so ni so nice and especially this kind of stuff where it's very simple it's you know, i give you you know a very short xml snippet and i make sure i get the right stuff back and the test run in you know tenths of a second it, it's just a great feedback loop yeah well and it's it's interesting too i mean i see teams that don't do testing or don't do much testing and you know i, I 
I'm not going to argue, you know, uh, about how a team works, but this is something that you expected other people to use. So I, I appreciate seeing tests in it from step one, right? Because then, then you knew that it was doing what it was supposed to. And then if I need to go use it, you know, I can go look at the tests and maybe add a test case if, you know, there's something missing there that I care about. So. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the, I don't have the best testing discipline, but definitely if I'm writing something that I know I'm going to distribute widely, especially outside of my company to the, you know, to the greater community, I'm going to make sure that this test there and that it does what I, what I say it's going to do. Yep. So what kind of uh, reception have you gotten inside your company? Are they like, wow, this is a good solution. We want to deploy this or something like this more widely. What, what's that been like? Yeah. So we, you know, we have, we've built out a, a pipeline in Ruby that ingests all, basically all the data we, we deal with. We have different integrations for all of the, the scanners and then we canonicalize things and everything flows through a single pipeline. And that's been working really well. But I did this spike on Elixir because there is, you know, one scanner that we interact with a lot that uh, the API is just very slow. And I, I've never been able to figure out if it is intentionally slow and it's just that's the way that they rate limit or if there's stuff behind the scenes that they're doing that slows things down. But, you know, an API call to get uh, what they call detections vulnerabilities for like a thousand machines can take minutes. But the, the API allows you to make six simultaneous requests. So they, they explicitly say in their documentation, yeah, yeah, things are slow sometimes, but you can use threading to solve that problem. But we have this pipeline built out in Ruby that is very much single threaded and very hard to break out of. Uh, and so it's been this thing we've been kicking around for a while. It's like, what would this look like if we threaded it and how would we do it? And because of design choices we've made along the ways, like there's parts of it that are just very hard to multi-thread. And so I was, I said, you know, let's take a look at what it would look like in a different language where threading and concurrency is like more built in and more of a first class citizen. Uh, and so I, you know, I did this work on getting it into Elixir and it, you know, it, it was well received. Um, it's something we want to get into more like the pressure to get the state in faster is growing. Um, it's really, really our hurdle right now is we just, we have an entire infrastructure built up around running Ruby and deploying Ruby and all these things. Um, and so the, some of the infrastructure side of running Elixir in production, we're still, working through we're on, we're on the path towards having containers and it's kind of the accepted the accepted solution right now is like let's wait until containers are in production and then we can drop elixir in a container and we don't have to worry about you know all the complications that come from trying to deploy a release and making sure we have uh you know the systems and operations team leveled up on elixir like running in containers is going to alleviate a lot of those problems and we're, we are very close to having, having a, a, a container solution rolled yeah. out. Awesome. That is, that is one of the huge benefits of containers is once you've got them, you can put anything in them and operationally they're very similar. Yeah. Well, I can't wait. And, and to me, this is the real interesting problem, right? I mean, you know, connecting an Elixir, you know, making an Elixir library that sits on top of an Erlang library. That's interesting. Um, you know, solving some of these technological issues, interesting, but it's the, it's the, how do we switch over, right? We have a system that looks so promising, looks like it can make our lives better in these ways. And it's, here are all the, the reasons with our company and our infrastructure and our people that make it hard for us to, you know, to make the changes that we would have liked to have made in Ruby to make it multi-threaded. 
And then, okay, well, so we went with an uh, Elixir-based solution, and now we've got the same kinds of problems, except it's moving over the infrastructure. And a lot of times, the, the companies, they, they look at the, the technology as kind of the silver bullet, and it's like, hey, look, this will solve all of our problems. And then you get to the other issues where you've got the people that you need to train, you've got the infrastructure that you've got to figure out. And, and that's really the, the crux of things. And I'm, I'm really curious, you know, what, what is the major obstacle? I mean, you, you're talking about, you know, we, we don't want to necessarily figure this stuff out, so we're waiting for containers. But, I mean, where are you getting hung up? I, you know, can you not just deploy Elixir on there and run the program? Or is it, you know, what, what are you hung, on, hung up on on there? Yeah, so there's, I'd say there's a couple things. Like if this was uh, a showstopper, like if, it, if the business was being actively harmed by our right. inability to run multi-threaded, like we would, we would certainly push forward and like figure out a way to, to shoehorn Elixir into production and get it running. I think it is uh, in some ways getting, at least right now, getting multi-threaded, getting this uh, integration running multi-threaded is somewhat of a nicety. Um, like it's going to make things easier for us. Clients will be happier that their data gets in sooner, but they are not like, you know, six hours, a six hour run overnight is not killing anybody, right? Running it in two hours overnight is going to be better for us. We get better utilization, all these things, but the business is not actively being harmed. So there is a little, uh, you know, there's not as much urgency to like shoehorn in a less good solution, I would say. Um, and we also have, you know, we are a security company and we care a lot about making sure that the boxes we're running on top of are patched and secure and that we have, you know, nothing's going to take us down and that we're, you know, when we're running in, in production, we're doing all these jobs. We want to make sure that we're stable and our clients can trust that, you know, we're running on solid infrastructure and there's just, is not a lot of Elixir expertise on the system side of the company right now, like they are it's something they're interested in, something we're working on getting there with, but you know, systems team. So we have a dedicated team of four, four systems, people who keep all of our machines up and running. We have, you know, dedicated instances in AWS that they manage and these kind of things. Um, and they're just, there's no, <laughs> there's no lack of demands on their time. I would say like they have, there's, there's always something, <laughs> you know, there's something yeah. else they need to be doing. There's another request from a client who's paying real money and all these kind of things. And so just getting all that stuff scheduled has been a little bit, uh, you know, it, basically what it comes down to is, you know, there's already this effort to get containers out, whether or not we switch to Elixir. So mm -hmm. that is already moving. It is very close to being done. And so, you know, kind of the calculus of, there is business value in switching over to a multi-threaded solution and Elixir seems to be the best way to do it, but it's not so pressing that we need to like, you know, leapfrog ahead of all these other concerns that systems are trying to deal with right now. Right. And I love that. I love just the discussion of, you know what, a lot of this stuff makes sense for us, but we understand what our priorities are. And it sounds like you've got a good communication structure and things like that with the rest of your organization. And again, a lot of times I think we, we kind of, look past that and, and not realize how important that is. And so, yeah, then, then you can look at it and have the discussion with everybody and go, okay, so, you know, a lot of these problems are going to be dealt with, you know, soon. And in the meantime, what we have works. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd say in general, we are, we do a good job of being very pra pragmatic about the, the stuff we do. Like we recognize at the end of the day, 
you know, the company doesn't exist for us to write cool software. The company exists to, you know, deliver value to, to our clients and make sure that we we can monetize that. And so, you know, the value, the fact that we get to write cool software along the way is a bonus. And, but the, the answer is not always writing cool yeah. software, right? Sometimes the answer is finding a way to make things work uh, that you've already written and, you know, get a little bit, squeeze a little, squeeze a few more dollars out of that. Boy, if that isn't a boil down of business, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but I thought the company existed so I could like try the new shiny. That was like the, the reason they're there. That the, the, the founder, he's like, I just need to create a place, a safe place where people can just play with shiny things. You know, yeah. there are companies out there like that, but <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. there's still got to be that pragmatic end of things. Yes, it's true. Mm-hmm. And I've been a manager for a little over a year now, and it's interesting how much my my view on all that stuff has changed. And oh, there's, yeah. you know, frequent times I'm talking to my team, and, you know, people slow down, let's remember why we're all here. And like, it's nice, it's nice that we get to do cool stuff, but at the end of the day, business needs to make money so we can all get paid on the 15th and the 31st. Yeah, but you also need some kind of like pressure release valve for mm-hmm. the fact that you clearly are having to deal with Nessus scanner APIs all day. <laughs> <laughs> and i've done that and uh yeah that's what side projects are for sanity yeah yep i will say we kind of uh, talked about containers there and you know the, the path to containers and i will say that that was something i underestimated in terms of the amount of work required to take an existing mature application like in this case i have some rails applications and some elixir ones that are They've been being deployed to, you know, uh, managed EC2 instances, like just we are managing them ourselves. And now it's like, okay, well, we want to put these in containers so we can put them into Kubernetes so we can have all these other operations benefits. But really, I mean, like it was, it's like just today, just this morning before we got on, I got it. So this Rails application could run rescue jobs in a container and a deployment for a Kubernetes deployment. And it's like, because that's not the way Rails is designed to run. Like, you know, it's, like, it's all about forking off processes and running in background jobs and containers don't want that. So it's, it's been interesting. Just like, I think we, it is where we want to go. It is where the industry is going. There are a lot of benefits for going to containerization, but I think we may underestimate the amount of work it takes to get there, like with an existing project. And like, I've seen the same with Elixir where uh, people were, just not being aware of what they were doing and the impacts, you know, like loading environment variables at compile time and putting them into module attributes. So they're like, they, they break stuff. It's like, no, okay, I got to find all these and fix them. So it sounds like you've been dealing with some of that too, Ben. Is that right? We've been talking through the, you know, the rescue and sidekick background jobs with containers a lot. Like that is, that is a way, like our pipeline gets kicked off with uh, rescue stuff. And like, we just have long lived, rescue jobs, which works really well, but then you consider all right, we're going to a container and how is this going to be different? And like probably ideally what you want to do is instead of running a rescue job, you just want to spin up a container and let it run for the duration of the job and then get rid of the container. And so we've been talking about what that looks like and the changes we need to make on our end in the application side, the changes that need to happen on the system side and just all the coordination that needs to go back and forth and make sure everybody has the same understanding of, you know, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, this is the design of the application. This is the infrastructure and the architecture, and this is how we envision it working and make sure that the application code and the system stuff all lines up. And, you know, you're talking to each other using the right verbs and the nouns and everything. What do you do to make sure you're on the right page with this stuff? 
Yeah. On the same page, not the right page, the same page. That's, that's great. I mean, you know, we are in kind of a sweet spot right now. We, we are growing, but we're not super large. So we have, uh, I would say 20 or so developers and then a team of four SREs and four systems people. SREs? Um, SREs, site reliability engineers. Okay. So they kind of, or we have systems people who are keeping the machines up and running. The SREs, their job is like understand the code and monitor how it how it's doing day to day in production and the developers were just, you know, we keep cranking out new features. You know, there's always, there's natural tension uh, that arises all the time between developers and systems. Cause you know, I'm a developer. My job is to get new features out as quickly as possible. And the system side, you know, their job is to keep the site up, right? And the easiest way to keep the site up is not change anything. So we go back and forth and, you know, we have a healthy dialogue, all three, all the, all the managers in the company get together every week and talk about what's going on. And that information trickles down, but we're still small enough where everybody on the development side knows everybody on the system side. And if something arises or you have a question about how the code you're writing is going to perform in production or be rolled out or anything like that, like it, it's a short walk. It's, you know, 20 yards to get down to the systems area and just, you know, sit down and talk to somebody. And so, you know, <clears throat> that's not something that scales, right? Like it doesn't, when you're 200 developers, it doesn't work that way, but you know, we're still in that sweet spot where we can fall back on that face to face and then slowly start building out the processes that facilitate that uh, communication once the face to face stuff becomes no longer possible. Well, and then if the system side becomes too reluctant to ship new code, what you do is you put in little, uh, little things that you know will break once a week <laughs> and then they have to put out the next release. You sound like the, you may have experience with this. This is the part where Josh gets Ben fired. Great. No, anybody knows better than to take my advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're fortunate enough. We still do continuous deployment, right? So we don't, we don't need them to like green light deploys. Awesome. The places where that hasn't been the case. So this, it's really nice. And uh, that is nice. <laughs> things have not gone wrong with continuous deployment yet. So we've been able to stick with it. So one thing that I'm wondering about is it sounds like, you know, even with slacks and some of the stuff that you're pulling together, that you're going to be running a polyglot system where part of the system runs in Elixir and part of the system of, you know, well, eventually anyway, and part of the system runs in Ruby. Um, so how do you get the two systems to talk to each other? Are you working out APIs for that? Or are you still going to have some form of rescue or something like that? Or, or what are you looking at there? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think kind of, where we where we've settled that right now is that if it were something that we had to push this out today, probably what the way we would do it is that you know the rescue job that would normally be running the Ruby code to talk to you know this the scanner would just call out to an Elixir service and sit there and wait until the Elixir service comes back. Mm. So and some of that is just an artifact of the way things are built out, where you know the code that runs. Uh, the code that does the integration to these services are really just like a bunch of rescue jobs. There's not a true, uh, you know, service to do all, to manage all the importing of data. And so we are planning on building out a more formal service to like manage these, uh, what we call connector runs to go out and pull in this data and be a little bit more aware of what's going on. Cause right now everything's very much isolated and, you know, you can have two, two things going simultaneously and they don't know about each other cause they're just, you know, two rescue jobs running side by side. They can't communicate. Um, so, so I think, you know, in the medium term, we would probably build out uh, 
you know, more formal APIs where we can communicate back and forth. I was going to mention, uh, not here suggesting anything because I have no idea what your system actually looks like, but I was going to mention for people that are listening, uh, there's a thing called BERT, which is uh, binary Erlang terms. Hmm. And you can, so I recently used, uh, I have an Elixir app that call, shells out to Python to do some um, PDF text translation and send me back a data format. And previously I was sending just like a table of data. So I just sent CSV and there was no big deal, but I needed to return richer data. And so I was able to use BERT uh, to encode the data. And one nicety is you encode like integers rather than like as a, when we were sending, shipping with CSV, it was a string and I had to know to parse this field. Anyway, so BERT, uh, pretty much every language has some BERT implementation. Uh, there's one for Ruby and there's also a thing called BERT RPC specifically for doing uh, remote procedure calls using the BERT uh, encoding. Um, anyway, so it's really cool if you need to just do a quick uh, communication between two systems and one of those systems is Erlangy, or even if it's not, it's actually pretty good encoding. If you're not, I've, I've used it for that before. So anyway, it's neat. That looks really cool. I hadn't heard of this before. I think, you know, I typically fall back to JSON everywhere, but this would be a lot better than JSON. New spike, new spike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I remember seeing a talk on this at like RubyConf in like 2008 or something. Tom Preston Warner did the uh, Ruby yeah. BERT thing. So uh, that made me really happy the first time I was using BERT and I saw I was using his code. I was like, all right. Well, anything should, else uh, we want to jump on on this? Yeah, I should also just back to SACS parsing for a minute. I should also point out <laughs> when I started this project, you know, I did a Google search and I didn't find any uh, Elixir SACS parsers. So I went and did Slacks. And then it took long enough that by the time I was getting around to actually publishing it and, you know, putting it up on Hex, I did another Google search. <laughs> and there is now an Elixir uh, SACS parser called Saxy, S A X Y, that is pure Elixir. Right, so it's not relying on their Lang library. It's pure Elixir, and according to the blog post uh, announcing it, it's a little bit faster than Earl Sound, the language that uh, Slacks is built on top of. So if, it, if someone's interested in, like I think Slacks is probably a little bit slower even than Earl Sound because I do a lot of translating strings to carless and carless back to strings because it's a little bit, I, I prefer typing double quotes basically. Um, so if somebody's looking for sax parsing and wants to get a little bit better performance, Saxy is out there and, you know, worth taking a look at. Nice. Well, thanks for sharing that. So I noticed uh, from some of our kind of previous uh, prior to the meeting, I noticed that you were considering how this might be actually something that you could use with GenStage for, you know, doing some more uh, parallel or concurrent kind of things. Um, I'm just curious as to where you see something like that would be helpful or how you would approach that. Yeah. So GenStage was really uh, what I was using to do the parallelization of the full import process. All right. So these, the, the API calls that we're making to, to take minutes of it at a time using GenStage really makes it easy to say, all right, I'm going to kick off one API request. And when that comes back, I'll pass it off to the next stage and start processing that at the same time as I make the next API request. Right. And so like you can, I, I was really looking for a reason to start playing around with GenStage. And so, you know, it, it worked out well that I got to use it for the spike. And I think, you know, GenStage to me is a really powerful feature of Elixir. And I'm really, you know, I think it makes sense. It's not part of the standard library, but it's, you know, it's nice that it's maintained by the same Elixir core team and it's not going anywhere. And it, it really, uh, to me, it's been a great way to, to build out the system and to have the back pressure to say, you know, I don't need to start parsing this 
document yet because there's nobody downstream who's a, who has the capability of, par, of handling the parsed document, yet, right? And like all that stuff is handled behind the scenes by GenStage. I don't have to worry about it. I just, you know, make sure that I have producers and consumers and GenStage hooks them up and does all the plumbing for me. And so that was really nice. Um, you know, when I was designing, when I, when I was doing slacks, I was debating whether or not there should be any, any thought of concurrency put into the library and where I kind of landed was, you know, it doesn't make sense. To me, it didn't make sense to build concurrency into the library and that if you wanted to handle things asynchronously, you can just have your callback handler kick off the asynchronous part and like hand it off to a process, like fork a new process or hand it off to a gen server or something like that. But to keep the library simple and easy to reason about, it's just, you know, it's very single process and very synchronous and we don't move ahead in the parsing until your handler comes back to, to Slack's and Earlson. Cool. Anything else we should jump on before we do picks? Uh, Josh, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I'm going to go with an article that I just uh, I just found interesting. Um, it's just about Rails. It's called "Who Gives an F About Rails in 2019," and um, I just I just found it interesting. It's not a particularly admonition one way or another, if, if I recall correctly, or at least that's the the takeaway I ended up with was anyway. But you know, we we have a, a project. We do tons of stuff in Elixir. Uh, we have a project coming up right now that we might do uh, in Rails just because in this particular case, we know the client uh, wants to, we know they'll want to, they will want to have a relatively cheap maintenance burden and not have to hire someone really full time to manage it. And we know that they have a better shot at that uh, in the current market if it's a Rails app. And it, do, it doesn't have a whole lot of like real time anything. So anyway, I just thought it was an interesting article. I thought I'd share it. Yeah, like I said before, I love the thought of the trade-offs, right? And some of the people trade-offs are the most interesting ones. So, yeah. Having said that, I have no interest in actually writing a Rails app, but I don't mind. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't mind managing uh, teammates who can do it just as fast as if they were building an Elixir app. Yep. All right, Mark. What are your picks? So recently, uh, I host the Utah Elixir Meetup, and I presented. And one of our members there uh, recorded it and he posted it online. So I didn't have to do that work, yay. And I was just gonna share a link to that. So what it was is I gave a talk about uh, gen servers and really how we need to get a mental model shift. And it's really all about, it's not so much like how do I read the code? It's how do I understand what the concepts are that are actually going on behind the code so I can see the code and, and now know what's going on. And a lot of it's just, it's a mental model shift. It really is. It's, you know, coming from an object-oriented perspective to something that's more pure functional where you're dealing with gen servers that act a lot like objects. So it's just kind of understanding a lot of this stuff. So it was, uh, it's, everyone seemed to really enjoy it. And so I was going to share that uh, as a resource that you can find on YouTube. Awesome. Uh, I'll jump in with some picks here. Um, I'm trying to re remember what I picked on Ruby Rogues. Um, one thing that I will call out on that particular show, so we just recorded episode 400 of Ruby Rogues. Um, and so that, that it was kind of more of a meta discussion about where we were at and stuff like that. And, uh, we, we kind of got pretty deep on like life and things like that. So, uh, I am going to shout out about that. I think, um, 
I think there's some good advice in there for, for folks who are trying to figure out which direction their career needs to go in. Um, and then I'm also going to pick a game called uh, Villainous. And it's a, it's a game, it's a Disney game, um, but it's for adults. I, I don't think even my 13-year-old would really get some of the subtle you know, gameplay that goes on. But essentially what it is is you're, you each play a different villain that's trying to circumvent their fate, right? Because you know, the story goes that the, the villains get defeated in the end. And so, um, you know, you play different uh, villains and the villains have different goals. So um, Ursula has to get the crown and the trident and, you know, defeat Triton and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and so different, uh, different villains have different outcomes that they're trying to reach. And uh, you can also sabotage the other villains because the way you win is by getting your win condition before anybody else does. And so you, they have a fate deck, and so you can play their heroes against them or, you know, different things from the, the, the various Disney movies. Um, anyway, it's really, really fun. Um, even if you're not a big Disney fan, the gameplay elements are really interesting. And so uh, we've really been enjoying that. Um, so, yeah, I'll pick, I'll pick those. Um, ben, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got four. I'll try to, try to keep it concise. Oh, you're good. <laughs> Uh, so my first pick is a book. It's called The Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidder. So what, uh, a little bit backstory about me. When I was growing up, I was fortunate to have uh, a computer in my room from a very young age. And I'm old enough where that was unusual, but not unheard of. Uh, right? So I had like a 386 uh, in my room running Windows 3.1. Uh, and I like, you know, I played around with it but I never really considered computers as like a thing I could do. Like both my parents are lawyers. I figured I was going to be a lawyer when I grew up. It seemed like a good job. And then I read this book and it was, you know, about the process of basically inventing a new computer. And it just opened my eyes to what was, what the, what the industry is like and what the job is like and what the work is like. And, you know, it kind of is the first thing that set me on the path to, to where I am today. Uh, right. So it's about this company called data general in the late seventies and they were building mini computers. Mini computers are this, you know, kind of Cro-Magnon man missing link between mainframes and PCs. And it's like your company's not big enough or can't afford a mainframe and PCs are still toys back in that time. So like you get go get a mini computer, right? And so Data General was a startup that was building, they had a successful computer and then DEC, who was kind of the, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the mini computer market, they'd come out with a 32 bit VAX and that was just eating data, eating data generous lunch. Uh, and they needed to compete with them. This is, the book follows the team who actually lost the internal bake off of data general to build a 32 bit machine. And they're like, well, we'll just upgrade the existing machine to 32 bits and it'll be an insurance policy in case something goes wrong. <clears throat> right. And so the book follows all the work that goes into the process of bringing a machine, both hardware and software into, into life. And it's a great, it's a great book. It's fantastically written. I mean, it won a Pulitzer prize for crying out loud. Like I reread it a couple, about a month ago and it, you know, it still holds up. It's, it's great. And it has, it's a, it's been a big book in my life just cause it kind of put me on the path to where I am today. Uh, next two picks are two papers slash articles that I think are really interesting. The first is called, uh, Reflections on Trusting Trust. And it's by Ken Thompson, who's one of the inventors of Unix and the C programming language. So he received the Turing Award, which is basically like the Nobel Prize for computing. 
And when you get to the Turing Award, you get to give a speech and then publish a paper that's kind of summarizes what your speech, speech was about. And instead of talking about Unix or C, he, he talked about, he spoke about trust in computing and basically, you know, <clears throat> how do you make sure that your code, that the compiler is not inserting a backdoor into your code when you compile it? He's like, well, you can read the source of the compiler, but then you got to trust that, you know, when that compiler was compiled, like it didn't turn the source of the compiler into some nefarious thing. And it goes kind of, you know, it's turtles all the way down. And he makes the argument a lot better than I can summarize it. And it's really, it's like three pages long. There's a bunch of code listings. It really takes, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to read. And it's really fascinating. Um, the next article is called the rise of worse is better. Uh, this probably would be a blog post, but I think it predates that term. Uh, and it's, you know, it's available online still. And it's really analyzing, you know, what it is about Unix really that, that caused it to win, right? So there was this big research effort between MIT and Bell Labs and a couple other places to build this thing called Multix, which is a very ambitious operating system. Uh, and that project kind of drug on and drug on and never really achieved its potential. But in the interim, these two developers at Bell Labs, Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie, in their spare time wrote Unix because they wanted to famously play Space War on a PDP-11. And so the paper looks at, you know, Unix didn't have all these high lofty goals that Multics had, but it won. Why did it win? You know, because it shipped earlier and, you know, clients will put up with bugs if they can run your software first and trust that you're going to start fixing things. Uh, you know, and it's modular and composable and all these kind of things that we value in today's software. And it's, you know, it's really, it's a really interesting look at, at that kind of stuff. It's a good perspective on, you know, what matters and what makes software win. Uh, so my last, my last pick then would be uh, a utility, uh, open source utility for taking screenshots. So I run Linux and one of the things that I've missed going to Linux from OSX is Sketch. But there's a free, a free software tool called Flameshot that gives, at least it gives me all the functionality that I need from Sketch. It lets you draw a rectangle on the screen, take a screenshot and then draw arrows and text and annotate that screenshot very easily. And it's, you know, it's, it's really simple to use. I have a bound to a, to a hotkey uh, and I use it all the time and it's, it's just great. Nice. If people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, the easiest way to do it is probably on Twitter. I'm bschmeck, B-S-C-H-M-E-C-K. Uh, anytime I do anything, I, I tweet about it there. I also have a blog, blog.s10r.com. My last name Schmeckpepper, and it's S10 letters and then R. Um, but anytime I blog, I also tweet about it. So if you just follow me on Twitter, you'll find, about, find out about anything I'm doing online. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Ben. Thanks for having me. This has been a blast. Yeah, it's been really interesting to dive into this and, and just see, you know, learn about SACS parsers and also talk about some of the issues with, you know, maybe migrating or, or, or sharing space between different systems. All right, well, we'll wrap this one up, folks, and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.